This week on the In-Depth Podcast, we hit the pavement traveling coast to coast with racing legend Jimmy Johnson. 48 on three. One, two, three. 48! First in California, the seven-time NASCAR champs testing his luck in a new motorsport, IndyCar. Then in North Carolina, Johnson reveals why he said goodbye to NASCAR after 19 seasons. There's just some moments of frustration of like, what am I doing this for? And how his drive for greatness isn't always fueled by what you might think. The fear going in is always pretty, pretty intense and almost debilitating. Once I take that step forward and I'm in the moment, the reward is so high, um, that's always kept me coming back. Plus, a crash that nearly changed the course entirely for the California native. Cars crash often and, you know, some are gonna be bad, but that's really the first time when I just thought it was over and, and kind of went limp in the car. And later, Johnson details his latest hobby that's paying dividends. Some of the art we've purchased has been our best investments. And we have a few that if you just look at the multiple that it's increased by, you just scratch your head. It's been, been pretty awesome. But first, El Cajon, California, 1970s. We begin on two wheels. I wanted to uh, start by taking you back to when you were a kid growing up. I, I think it's Barona track, uh, Barona Oaks racetrack. What do you recall from helping out where your parents were working? Um, it was just what we did. And I, I noticed that other families um, had different hobbies on the weekends. For us, we would uh, load up our van. We had a little enclosed trailer, um, put the bikes in, take our sleeping bags and drive to the racetrack. On a Saturday midday, my parents would work and get the track ready, spend the night, wake up Sunday morning and uh, ride our motos and race. And you knew even back then that was yeah, what you wanted to do. So I just grew up in the epicenter of, of motorcycle racing. All of my heroes were on two wheels. My earliest um, papers that I wrote in school were about being a motocross racer. And over time, it, it transitioned to four wheels and then to stock cars and all of that, or indie cars and stock cars. But um, the early days, it was all about two wheels. When you were a kid, you also had this fear, I understand, of just falling off the, the bike and getting run over right after the start, right? Yeah. And then one time it happened. There was a time in uh, in Oklahoma for the, the mini nationals. I fell and, and a rider rode over kind of my side of my chest and my armpit, which was day one of like seven days we were there racing in the summer. And that was painful in many ways and long lasting. Uh, there was a crash the first turn of uh, a race at Barona Oaks, my local track. Um, which then led to a few laps later of me crashing and breaking my knee and having reconstructive knee surgery. So- uh, And that, that was your eight? Eighth birthday, the, okay. yeah. Wasn't the first turn or being run over so much. I was on a small bike and the jumps were built for bigger bikes. And some of the faster kids in my class were brave enough to try these. And I just, I didn't have that bravery to send it off the jumps. And at a, a certain point in my career on bikes, it kind of held me back and kept me from, from moving forward. I think it was 12 years old, your dad makes you just stop racing because I think people you guys knew were getting injured and- Yeah, know, and I, I was super concerned. injury prone. I mean, I broke so many bones, had reconstructive knee surgery being, being probably the worst. There, there were some fatalities in and around the sport with kids at a young age from head injuries, uh, broken bones, very common. You know, an occasional um, helicopter ride out for kids at the racetrack, and that would always put it in perspective. How did you feel when your dad made you stop? I was pretty, pretty bummed, but I, I just I sensed that it wasn't the end of my racing. But um, my my last injury, I broke both feet um, <laughs> and seven toes, and and literally, my dad's like, I can't, I can't do this to you anymore. When he said that, I, I mean, you're just like 
find? Yeah, I, I got it because it was the end of the season um, at a, a regional event for the regional championship of, uh, of California. And when the season started back and we weren't getting ready like a lot of our friends were, that's when, when the reality kind of sank in. How key was the fact that your parents didn't push you, you think, in your continued interest in sport? It was a big part of it. And I remember watching other parents, you know, push hard. I mean, so hard that I recall my dad um, jumping in a truck with another father and going for a drive just because he didn't like what, what he saw. And I, I remember some of those moments and just feeling sorry for some of these kids that had the overly aggressive parents pushing them. And, and my parents took a much different approach. And I, I think, you know, I experienced some burnout through my, my younger years because we raced so often and traveled so much. But um, you know, I look back at, at these prodigies, if you will, that, that hit burnout at 14 and just walked away from the sport altogether. Your first truck race when I think it was at San Diego Stadium, uh, heard you had quite the celebration after that. <laughs> I did, I uh, won the heat race. Um, mind you, I'm, I think I'm 16 at this point, racing against heroes like Ivan Stewart, and Rick Johnson, Walker Evans, these iconic names of motorsport. I win the heat race and I had to deal with my dad that if I if I won, I could have a party at the house. Because you'd apparently been asking forever to have- a Yeah, party. leave the racetrack like that and have everybody back. But I mean, we're teenagers. So right. my dad's like, no, no chance. And my dad threw out this, you know, what he thought was an unobtainable goal. You win, we're going. And uh, it happened and they handed me the microphone in front of 50,000 people in a packed stadium. And I said, party at my house. Tell about your grandparents' motorcycle shop. It was, it was before my time, but K&R, Ken and Ruth Kawasaki was the motorcycle shop in El Cajon. Uh, my dad ran the service department and that was you know, our connection to, um, to all the things that we did. Summer, winter from riding dirt bikes in the winter, some of the summer to going to the, the local rivers and riding jet skis and all the stuff that we did. But uh, my dad's mechanical, um, you know, ability was really kind of developed there and he didn't race professionally, um, but, but was in racing because of the motorcycle shop. Uh, so it was really kind of the starting point for my career. If not for Vietnam, how do you think your dad would have fared as a professional racer? Yeah, he was just getting a start and was drafted to the Vietnam War. And when he returned, it just, that, that opportunity kind of passed him up with the manufacturer that was interested and it was time to go to work. I believe he drove a truck. I think your mom drove a, a bus at some point. How do you think their professional experiences influenced you? Through watching them get up really early to go to work, work countless hours to then spend any spare moments they had on their children and taking them racing and help us you know, chase our dreams, just showed me the, you know, how hard you have to work to get ahead. And it's not that we were ever ahead. Um, you know, my parents um, worked their tails off for, for a low wage, if you will. And I think that that was all instilled in me in, in the way I work and I can't sit still. And um, I've always outworked the people I've, I've raced against or been around. I think I got that because of their journey. What do you think you learned from each of them? Uh, my dad was, was, you know, put a smile on your face and, and even when you don't want to and work through it. 
And then my mom, uh, very much just the, uh, the kindness, and both are very kind, but there's no one like mom. And my mom has the biggest heart. So I think the balance of those two are who I am today. How tight was money? Way tighter than I realized. When I was officially a professional race car driver, I was then informed that I was making more money than my parents at 16. You didn't see it at the time? I didn't. We, anything we wanted, we, we had, and we, we were very simple-minded. Um, we just wanted to ride our dirt bikes and then in the summer go play on the water and the lakes and rivers. We didn't have the nicest house, but we worked hard on it and through my dad's connections and construction, we continued to upgrade our house. And it didn't it. have enough rooms, right? No, it didn't. First, it was just four of us, and then we built a garage so that my dad could um, you know, be a professional, kind of be a crew chief and look after a racing vehicle. And then when my youngest brother was born, we needed another room. so. Next to the garage, they built this little shed, this little room for me, and that was that was my my spot. And your youngest brother, ten years younger, you're being yeah, I was pl pleasant surprise. A bit more than that, as I recall, uh, on the edge of going into high school, and our parents sitting us down and saying, hey, "By the way, uh, you're going to have a baby brother soon." And I was like, "What? You're kidding me? There's no way." So, as you mentioned, didn't have the fanciest house, but you guys had all of the toys. Yeah. Um, how do you think that impacted you? it took work to maintain those vehicles. So my spare time was, was dedicated to, to you know, trying to help and take care of that stuff. Um, but I, I think most importantly, my parents had a line in the sand that your behavior, uh, your grades, um, you know, how you conduct and carry yourself, all of that equals these toys that you love so much. And I'm trying to now kind of replicate that with my kids. Um, granted, our means are, are much different and we have access to far more, but. You, know, you better get the basics right um, as, a, as a student, as a, a sibling, as a child, and, and, and do all of that to earn that opportunity. Jeff Gordon, uh, number 24 car, I think it's the only piece of merchandise you ever yeah. bought when you, know, you were a kid. It sat, uh, I believe, above your, your bed. His, now, mind uh, you, it was a waterbed, nothing like the 80s. And then he, all of a sudden, you find yourself in the hauler. With yeah. him, um, I mean, there was a little more to it than that. But w what do you remember from that conversation? I was out, you know, pounding on doors trying to make something happen, and all of my opportunities meant leaving Chevrolet. And Jeff left Ford to go to Chevrolet and had this, you know, just amazing career. And I felt like he had the answer. So then I introduced myself, asked him for some time, and he invited me back to his hauler to uh, to chat. He was already impressed though with you. I had at no that clue. Time. Yeah, I had no clue he even knew who I was. So when I go to leave the transporter, Jeff stops me and says, "Hey, you're you're not going to believe this, but I know who you are. We've been talking about you internally for a while, and we're talking about starting starting a fourth team at Hendrick, and your name's the only name that's come up. So." Don't get too excited, but we might have a solution to your problem. And what are you thinking when he says that? My head exploded on the spot. I think it was you know, maybe a month, month and a half later, I had a signed contract uh, with Hendrick Motorsports. Why do you think the relationship with Jeff has lasted? We have so much in common and, and we don't see much of each other. Nowadays, we're so busy and running in different directions, but- You guys also had fun in your younger we, days We had together. a lot of fun. He was just newly divorced when I came onto the, the scene and going racing and you know, his means and ability and desire to see the world worked perfect with my single single life schedule. And, and on that journey, I met my wife. He helped introduce me to my wife. And All right, how about best time you can remember having with him? Remember? That's probably the key okay. word. But there were some summer summer trips to, uh, to France and Italy that um, were just mind blowing. I mean, to stroll over there in my early 20s, 
Shani and I together with Jeff, uh, checking out you know various parts of the world was, was pretty wild. Although interestingly, I understand it wasn't until he retired that you felt most comfortable in your own skin. How so? He was such a mentor to me inside and out of the car. You know, the, the business side of, of going racing uh, was something I had not had a lot of exposure to. Then the competition side creeps in and now I'm racing him for wins. Uh, racing him for championships. And that's always the toughest part as teammates. You might generally like someone, but on Sundays, you gotta put the helmet on and go to work. Your buddy is now, in a sense, your enemy, and he's taking food off the table from you. Because so, he probably would have won more, if not for you. Yes, yes. And and we had some you know tense moments in our competing years, especially when you get to probably 07, 08, I'd won a championship or two. Um, in there at 08 or 09, we literally, was between Jeff and I, fighting for the championship. And is there a time you can remember where it was most tense between the two of you? We started leaning on each other, bumping each other, and um, I, I overreacted to a moment at Texas. And as we came down the front straightaway, I turned into him and just slammed into the side of his car. Once I saw the video of what happened, I knew how wrong I was, um, but it's hard to uh, not want to beat your teammate, especially when you're both fighting for wins week in and week out. Uh, you know, the, the tension that comes with that is pretty intense. What consumes your thoughts on a day in, day out basis? It's, you know, there's a lot going on in life now. So, you know, balance of, of work life, family life. Um, but in that headspace of racing, I had a swim coach teach me how to really visualize my, my start, my stroke, my turn. So I, I've adapted that to my, my car racing stuff. And depending on the upcoming race or the race that I just had, as I'm building my notes or preparing for the next one, I literally drive laps in my head. Sometimes in, in bed too, right? Yeah, like that's the best way to fall asleep for me. Just sit there and run laps in my head. It's funny because I'll, I'll micromanage in my thought the lap and, and I'll make a mistake and I'll start over. And so I keep working my way around whatever the track is. And then before I know it, I'm asleep. Is there a specific track that you most commonly go to or? A lot of times it's a track that I just left as I'm working on my notes um, to prepare for the upcoming race. And then the upcoming race, when I dive back into those notes, when I'm able to drive in the simulator or even have a chance to drive the track, it brings all that back. And uh, I just get into that visualization space. And does Shani know what you're doing? I'm sure I've told her about it, but I don't know if she realizes how many nights I've fallen asleep to that. There's not some like look you get where she knows you're off in Never Never Land. Uh, you bring up it. a good point. Um, around race weekends, even my friends know that there's fun Jimmy and there's race Jimmy. And when I go into race Jimmy, I, I'm definitely much more inside my head and less social. How do you beat yourself up? Uh, I, I think on mistakes that I've made, um, some are visible, some are not. You know, there, there are habits usually driven by fear in a race car that, um, just get under my skin that, and I'll start beating myself up on that. Like, man, let go. Like, you just gotta send it. The fear going in is always pretty pretty intense and almost debilitating, but I've found that once I take that step forward and I'm in the moment, that uh, I manage and deal with it much more. And then on the backside, the reward is so high, um, that's always kept me coming back. You said almost debilitating, like, yeah. how so? Yeah, I, I think of recent times and the week leading into a championship, the day before the championship, the hours before you fire the engines to go racing. The weight of the moment, the, for myself, the thinking and overthinking, I mean, it just is an energy drain of epic proportion and paralyzing. And I've literally had to run through my head, like step out of the motorhome, walk two driver introductions, get in the car, 
fire the engine and, and walk myself through it and it's wild, fire the engine and, and all of a sudden I'll wake back up and it's, it's time to go. You know, as anybody gets older, responsibility increases. Yeah. Most often personal life becomes more consuming. How, if at all, do you think that impacts pursuit of excellence? There are older athletes now that are highly successful. And, and I, I've worked up this theory in my own mind that it's due to who's around them. Um, first and foremost, their spouse and the support they have from their spouse and Shani's support and understanding of, of what makes me me and chasing my dream. None of this would have happened at the level that it has or continue to take place if it wasn't for her support. I'm as, as excited today to go racing as I, I am, I was when I was a teenager. And I, I don't think that's, that's very common, you know? And, and it has so much to do with the people that are around you. I wish I was a little bit better of an example of winning championships still right now today. Um, but to win seven, yeah. you know, I've got into my forties to win my seventh. We had children. I think that's a really good example of it. But currently it's Tom Brady. You know, you continue to hear these stories about he's the first one in the building, the last one out. He's working with second string guys. He's working with the kicking team. Like he is so embedded and great in that team. Um, that's what it takes to continue to operate at a high level. I don't know him personally, so I don't know his family life, but it certainly appears that he's in a very good place and has that support at home, which allows him to spend the time that he needs. The seven championships that you won, what role do you think the fact that you had a lot of consistency among people that worked for the team played into the success that you guys had? For me, it is the foundation. I've only driven for a couple, uh, a couple team owners. Sponsorship wise, I've, there's, there's just a couple through my entire career. 17 years of marriage, you know, I am the one that wants and needs a stable environment. So to drive for Rick Hendrick for all those years, to have Chad Knauss at the helm for all those years, that, that was the best environment for me to succeed. Why do you think the relationship with Chad worked? Our hunger together was unmatched by anyone else in the sport. And, and honestly, through the years, we, we changed the sport in so many ways due to our, our desire and work ethic. And also we should uh, unmatched, not just at the time, but in history, right? Testing was such a part of our success and that, that's going to the racetrack and spending a day or two there to, to learn the track, update the car, bring, you know, engineer new ideas for the car. And many drivers and teams want to do the bare minimum of testing. And at Hendrick, we had the resources to test all the time. And Chad and I literally would. It made our communication better. It made our team better. We certainly found and engineered more, more tricks to the car and made the cars faster. But, and that, that was our, our sauce. We would test and practice and try over and over and over. And we both wanted it. How was the relationship unique? We quickly uh, had so much in common that a, a, a French, more than a work relationship started, like a friendship started. He became my, you know, my third sibling. Like we're, we truly have that connection like brothers. I, I mean, I hear enough stories about him that I can understand he can be a reasonably difficult individual. <laughs> That's fair. And I think the mistake we both made at the end of our time together was maybe not evolving enough within our relationship to, to the new us. And when times got tough, Chad reverted back to the, the crew chief that he was when we first started. Which was what? Micromanaging, you know, explaining where I was making mistakes, what I needed to do, how I needed to work on it. And what are you thinking when he's doing that? I mean, don't you want to tell him to like F I, off? I did. 
and, and that was um, that was kind of the the start of the decay over probably a you know five or eight year period of time. And he and I both so wish we could go back and correct that because now looking back on it, it was a defense mechanism for him and he was only doing it because he cared. And I just got tired of hearing it. So I started firing back and then I would just start in the car while racing instead of being focused on the job, I would start thinking about what the hell I was gonna say to him. Your dad was saying he, he was a, a spotter and he was literally working right next to Chad as Chad would be destroying you on, on the radio. And he's like, it was just so uh, uh, uncomfortable. People were like, how can you let him talk to you that way? But the trust we had for one another, I would say 80% of it, it was just the brutal truth. And, and honestly, that that even though it hurt, even though it pissed me off at times, that brutal honesty is what made us get better. And just at the end, if we could have handled it in a different way with one another, we could have stayed together through the end of our careers and potentially got the eighth. Was there a moment or an argument that took place where you just knew in your head at that point, this is done? We just won the championship. We come back, um, start the 2017 season. And that really, really got under Chad's skin that I, I wanted to be in Aspen and not in Charlotte. And things started to get personal then. And, and him questioning my, where my heart was with the team and the time and effort I wanted to spend and be with the team was, was really kind of that the starting fracture point. How did you guys repair it? We didn't, sadly. But you're, you're reasonably close again now, right? Even though it was tough, we were still very honest with each other through the, the breakup and through the next chapter for both of us. And um, you know that, that honesty and, and respect and bond that we have just kind of worked its way through. And, and now we're at a spot that is, is really amazing. Um, I'm running in the IMSA series and some endurance races in the IMSA series. Mr. Hendricks involved and, uh, and Chad is uh, involved as well and, and we're working together again. So um, it's come full circle and it's really just been out of the respect for one another and the honesty that we've had. You mentioned the, the guy that helped you both in working through it, a therapist of yeah. some capacity, right? It was very little reflection and very little finger pointing of you said this, no, no, you did that. It was like, it's a mess. This is how we're gonna get better. And, and it really helped us for a while. And I, I would say, um, as far back as probably 2013 is when when we really had some professional help um, and it got us to you know winning the championship in 2016 and then things kind of unraveled from there um, but it, it was it was a big help and a lot of a lot of things learned in that moment has helped me just with life in general my personal life how so i always felt like there was work jimmy and home jimmy and i quickly realized that we are who we are you know, there are different stressors on, on each side, but we all process, analyze, handle, react in the same way. It doesn't matter if it's personal or, or professional. And that's something that I, I thought, no, I, I'm just mad at work. I don't bring it home. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't overreact just at work on the radio with Chad. Yeah, you know, I'm overreacting here in my personal life as well. Are there tools that you learned or developed through the, the, the therapist that you found really helpful? Awareness listening and I'm sure I can still be better at that. I'm sure Shani would agree. Do you think she could tell a noticeable difference in you after you started going? I, I think so. I mean, she she lived through, you know, all of those emotions um, and they were all extreme from extreme frustration to ex extreme elation and championships. And she'd be in the bus waiting for me. I'd come back from a Friday practice. We're terrible and Chad and I are fighting and this is wrong, that's wrong 
all of a sudden Sunday afternoon, we're in Victory Lane holding up a trophy and we figured it out. Um, so that, just the emotional extremes that, that took place, um, she witnessed it all and has helped navigate, you know, helped me navigate a ton of that. She gets far less credit than she ever deserves for really helping guide me through all of that stuff. Cause she was, she was the brunt end in dealing with those emotions from, from week to week, month to month, year to year. Um, but she, she definitely would say that the professional help did have an effect. And then certainly uh, professionally and, and personally and, and, and applying those things to my personal life. A couple of crashes I wanted to bring up and you've covered these plenty of times before, but the, the first one being uh, the Alltel car crash Watkins where Glen. the brakes give out. What do you remember from that? Cars you crash often and you know, some are gonna be bad, but that, that's really the first time when I just thought it was over and, and kind of went limp in the car. And thankfully I did because uh, preparing for the impact and lowering my head as I did and going limp was, uh, was the best thing for me. This crash took place before soft walls were mandatory and before we had any of the uh, mandatory restraint systems in the car to um, prevent a basal skull fracture, which is the injury that, that killed five drivers and the fifth being Dale Earnhardt Sr. What do you remember thinking it's, it's happening? And then I knew the, the racetrack went to the right and I tried to make the turn and I was into the grass and lost control of the car at that point. And I had no brakes. When I first, when I went to slow the car down, the brake pedal went to the floor, I had brake failure. And 150 miles an hour with no brakes. And on my way flying into those foam barriers, I thought the foam was concrete. And that's what led to me going limp in the car. And, uh, and thankfully it was a series of soft walls and I was able to walk away from that crash. The Baja 1000. Yes. And you lose control of your truck. Baja was a wild experience because I literally woke up crashing. Um, sounds crazy. What, but what, what do you mean? I fell asleep. It's probably three or four in the morning. Been in this rough train, bouncing around, easy to stay awake. Finally got onto a smooth road and nice long straightaway. And I just got too comfortable and nodded off. And I, I woke up just before I went off the road and there was a, a sharp 90 degree turn and tried to hit the brakes, went straight off the road. And as I was going off the road, there was a huge boulder and I hit this boulder and the vehicle went straight up into the air. And I can recall seeing the headlights just shooting into the darkness. And I had no idea what I was gonna land on. And I, I was just coming out of a mountain range, how far I was gonna fall. And yeah. thankfully it was just a, a steep embankment and tumbled off into the darkness out there. What do you remember thinking about out there? Because you were out there for a while. It was, it was probably a full day before we were, we had the truck onto a trailer to take it away. But what's wild is this is a 95, so communications weren't, aren't, you know, weren't like they are today. And then my, the, the team itself has vehicles that leapfrog the race truck going down the race course. Um, just in case you're not in radio communication, they, they can keep up with you. My chase truck, as it's called, got into a, fender bender in a small little Mexican town and my chase crew was arrested and put in jail. So really? when I crashed, the vehicle that was supposed to find me, those guys are busy emptying their pockets and giving away everything they could to get out of jail. And I don't know if more was made of this than that actually existed, but it caused you to reflect on kind of what you wanted to do. I knew going into that race that my job was in question the next year. and. Here I am again with a totaled race truck, almost killed my co-rider, the, the crash, all the, all the impact was on his side. 
And I had, you know, give it a day to sit there and think about the aggression I had and I was gonna be out of a job. How well do you remember the embrace with your dad uh, after that when you guys met back up? It was, it was huge and he told me before the race, you know, he had a dream, be careful. I'm like, you're crazy. And as I was sitting there in the darkness, um, vehicles would come by and I would stop them. Hey, we've crashed, we're fine. My dad's in the next pit and everybody knew my dad. Please tell him I'm okay. And it was 60 miles away, they all forgot to tell my dad. So as I don't arrive, my dad knew this mountain range, knew that I've been in a crash. No one is reporting anything, communication so minimal. And he had to sit there with all of that for a long, long time. So when I saw him, there was, there was a big embrace. Do you remember what he said? No, I remember tears and I don't, I don't see tears very often with him. And from you too, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, I was hanging on um, and yeah, I had tears as well, but I'll never forget his face walking up to him and just, just seeing the relief, you know? And, and what's wild is I, I see him and I'm running to him. It's like, once again, dad's right. Like, you know, parents are always right. You never want to admit it when you're a teenager, but he was right. At some point you had interest in being a TV reporter. And Chevrolet was guiding my career. And they're like, why don't you come do pit road reporting for us in the Midwest? Uh, man, it's, it's one, it paid. Two, it had me on TV. Three, I could network. And off I went, and that was literally a blessing that I didn't see in advance. Um, that's where I got to know the Herzogs so well. And the following year, I ended up in their truck, racing their truck. And they wanted to grow teams and help them grow all the way to the NASCAR Winston Cup Series. And that was my aspiration at the time as well. So they put us together and literally grew us from the off-road racing program that I was in all the way to Bush Grand National, which is the second tier in NASCAR racing. So we almost made it all the way together. Tell about Charlie Meatballs. <laughs> His name? Well, the well, actually, I guess it's Animal and a production company, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, gosh, yeah, you're right. Yes, yeah, so when we decided to start the production company and we were looking for a name, we recently just added a, a pet to our household and the kids named it Charlie Meatball. And we sat in on a meeting, um, kicking off the, uh, the production company and the icon of Charlie's face pops up and Charlie Meatball Productions. And as I dug in more and looked around at production company names, they're kind of off the wall and interesting and, and thought, man, it, it works, let's do it. What made you decide you wanted to go down that path? Yeah, I've always had an interest in photography and we have a few projects that we've been working on, including one uh, of my own with my all the content uh, collection we've done through my career. I have years and years of video and still images. Um, we have a book that's coming out that really documents um, probably 15 years of images that we've been able to take. Um, I've had professional photographers come to tracks and just collect stuff. All of that's just been kind of a passion and burning in the background. What else do you have interest in doing with it? I, I love docus and, and really finding interesting stories to tell. We bought life rights to a very interesting man named Randy Lanier. Um, he, he was a race car driver for a long period of time and, and, and pretty talented, uh, but his cars were always unsponsored. And so there was a great question as to, how can you go racing without sponsors? And then he was arrested for trafficking marijuana um, and bringing it, into, bringing it into Florida. So there's a very interesting story to be told with the, uh, you know, his journey from Virginia to Florida, getting caught up in the drug trafficking scene, then going racing and winning some of the most marquee events, being an IndyCar driver, um, 
then of course being arrested, his journey through um, incarceration, and then now where he is in life. How about best and worst financial decision you ever made? Right now I would say some of the art we've purchased has been our best investments in which with Shani's interest. And, and I, I've had an interest in collecting, but uh, we've, we've bought some art. We have a few that if you just look at the multiple that it's increased by, you just scratch your head. It's been, been pretty awesome. And over what, what period of time? You know, it depends on the artist's journey and, and their path and where they are in their yeah. career. Some as early as four years, others probably 10 or 15 years. Um, and then honestly, the worst decisions I've made has been with, with boats. Um, oh, wait, what's this? <laughs> I, I actually heard uh, like your first big purchase after you started making money was one for the Colorado uh, River. Pickle Fork boat um, with a big engine on the back, little lightweight boat that traps air under it. That's why it's called a Pickle Fork. And it gets up and dances on the water and goes way too fast. That one wasn't overly expensive. When I moved to North Carolina, um, it was driving in the Xfinity series. The first purchase again that I made was a boat, but a bigger and faster one. This one now has three engines on the back. And the second time I drove it, I about crashed it. I um, was running along at 120 and hit a wake. And when I hit the wake, the, the boat went airborne and all the air trapped under the boat almost blew it over. And I literally took it back to the dock, put it on the trailer, called the guy back and said, I, I can't have this thing, I about killed myself. And then I found out how quickly a boat depreciates when you, when you take it off the lot. So. I took a bath on that one. How about best financial advice you ever got? I've had access to meet so many people and to, to really lean in on those relationships and contacts. Um, and then that's led me to the, the, the commercial real estate side, which, which I think has, has worked really well for us over the years. Before you made it big, how did you find smart ways to save money? I just, I grew up in a very frugal environment and my dad thankfully instilled you know, the, the notion in me that when you buy something, you go buy it and, and you don't finance it. And I recall trying to get my first home loan. They're like, you can have so much more of a home. And, and for a split second, I thought, really? I can have a big house on the lake? And then I'm like, no, no, hold on, hold on. Don't do that. So within that, in, in really understanding the value of owning something, I, I think has been probably the best thing I was taught. Retirement. Um, describe the feeling when you knew it was over in NASCAR. The grind, more than anything, it had kind of changed me. And I, I wasn't holding up to the core values that I, I kind of held for myself. And I was just grumpy for the last, you know, last couple of years. And, you know, the breakup with Chad and moving on was, was probably the peak of it. There was some excitement in starting over and, and working through developing the team and, and bringing it back to its form. Making the decision and saying it out loud that I was gonna retire, just, or stop NASCAR, took this weight off my shoulders that I didn't know was really there. And what was the feeling you first had where you started to know personally before you even articulated it to anybody? There's just some moments of frustration of like, what am I doing this for? You know, I don't need to be this, this pissed off at times, right? Like I, I don't need to do it. And then we'd win a race and you're like, oh, I, I, I was just, you know, an overreaction, I'm good. Um, then you stop winning races and you don't have that moment to right. kind of reset, uh, changes things. And it, and it became more, more serious and I was saying it more regularly. Was it hard to know that that would kind of de deprive you of the ability to keep going after eight? It was never about the number of championships for me. Um, 
I couldn't believe that I won one, five, six, seven. I just couldn't believe it. My, my goal was to win a race. So I cleared that hurdle you know, yeah, right. in year one. That put pressure on me that, uh, that was part of the grind. And then, then I realized subconsciously what, what was weighing on me. What was it about that that made you realize it? There's a window of time where we could essentially win at will. There was a point where it's like, well, we'll just work hard and we'll, we'll figure it out. And it continued to work over and over. And when that started to fade, um, you know, that's, that's kind of an eye-opening moment. So we were talking about economics earlier and you look at NASCAR since 2015, Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart, Dale Jr., Carl Edwards, Danica, Matt Kenseth, you go on, uh, you know, all retired during that, that period. How much do you think economics played into that? NASCAR's been going through quite a bit of change since uh, Tony, uh, even prior to Tony's retirement. The playoffs have changed a couple of times. The rules continue to change. And a lot of that is to help the bottom line. And, and ultimately, the bottom line has moved so much because the way fans consume our sport has changed a lot in the, the last 15 years or more. And, and what starts that whole process is the tune-in numbers. Tune-in numbers drive the sponsorship numbers. Um, that obviously drives the purse and then certainly the sponsorship on a given car that a driver shares in. If you were running the sport uh, and you could make you know, any changes you wanted, what would you do? I, I've always firmly felt that there's, there's just too much racing in, in NASCAR. Um, that's my opinion and, and I've had that conversation with executives at NASCAR and reducing the schedule down to 25, 28 races, I think would, would be the, the ideal way to go about it. The positive uh, asymptomatic COVID test, <laughs> uh, how frustrating was that? And, and I asked that too, with the, you know, obviously plenty of people have gone through far more, you know, significant stuff during yeah. the pandemic than not being able to race. But they, I mean, for you and kind of your year and your streak, yeah. yeah. Still today, I'm not sure if I um, ever had it. I had a false positive. And what I regret the most is not going back and taking a second test. Why didn't you? It was so new. Yeah. And I, you know, we were trying to be so cautious and my wife was positive as well. And that's how it started to me that I, I just assumed that I, I had had it and didn't think that a chance of a false positive could exist. Trying to do the right thing. You know, we instantly go into quarantine mode. You know, this is Friday afternoon, I get this news. Monday morning, I'm negative. Tuesday morning, I'm negative. I mean, I, I just, I think I had a false positive. Do describe what that night before the race was like, the race that you would have otherwise been competing in? I was still under the assumption that I was positive. Granted, I didn't have any symptoms, so I'm thinking, wow, I'm, I'm so lucky to be asymptomatic. Yeah. Now, Monday morning when I got the call back and heard that it was negative, then, then I hit the ceiling and, and was furious. Oh, really? Oh, absolutely. I mean, thinking I might have COVID-19 and, and the concern, the pandemic and all of that, it wasn't easy to watch the race, but it, it was what it was. It was a reality I had to accept. How strange was it on the sport front not having the family around? It was wild. I mean, it was my final year, you know, a year that we planned to celebrate as a family. We told the school that, hey, the kids aren't going to be around much because yeah. this is dad's last year. But at the track, there was the bubble and the family couldn't, my family couldn't travel. And this celebration of my career, you know, I feel in some ways, um, 
we, we didn't get to have our family experience that, that we wanted to in that final year. If you don't mind, just from what you recall from the, uh, uh, when you found out about the alleged noose to before that race started, take me through what you remember. Yeah, the, uh, the discovery um, I think happened in the afternoon and then it hit the press during the evening, next day we're racing. I had already gone to bed and, and wasn't aware of, of what had happened. Um, so I wake up in the morning, I'm traveling to Talladega for the race. I understand what's what's all going on. And uh, I just reached out to, to Bubba and said, hey man, I, if you don't mind, I wanna come stand, stand with you during the national anthem. I just thought that would be a, a friend thing to do to show my support to Bubba. Um, and then that word got out and before I knew it, I had drivers and team managers all saying, you know, hey, we wanna do that as well. Within a few hours, it evolved into what it did and we all decided to push his car from where it was on the starting grid down to the, the head of the field and, and show our support as an industry for Bubba. Um, you know, just a, a crazy set of circumstances and we were at the track the day before and with an airplane flying above, pulling a, a Confederate flag, there were parades going on and protests outside the Talladega racetrack um, as well, it was just a, a very heated environment. And then the noose showing up in the garage stall, um, you know, just kind of tipped the scales at that point. And, and regardless of if the FBI found out the, you know, noose wasn't there for that reason or not, how powerful was that moment on the track that day to be in it and seeing the, the sport coming together like that? So powerful. Um, and people walking um, that I, I I wasn't sure. Uh, I wasn't sure where they stood. I wasn't sure what their feelings were. You, you work next to so many people in the sport. You, you just you don't know, and you see these people in passing. But I mean, everybody came out and pushed that car. Got behind the car. I mean, it was incredible to see. It's, it's such a powerful moment. When I found out that the noose wasn't in, wasn't there for the reasons we thought it was, I had such relief, and it was wild how the reaction was for others. But what do you mean? You know, the controversy that followed and, and people that that thought the sport was trying to make something of it, or it, it, remember just all the charged energy and atmosphere around around that period of time. And, um, you know, I, I wish NASCAR handled things a little differently with their press release. I think a few words would have changed if alleged news yeah, was sure. in there, would have been different. But the backlash that followed was so different than the relief that I personally had thinking, thank God, you know, right. thank God there wasn't a noose in, in Bubba's uh, garage stall. Right, and also good that the year caused some positive change in NASCAR Correct. too. Correct. I want to jump ahead to IndyCar and the, uh, but preceding that, the impact that the Formula One ride in Bahrain had on you? Being in an open wheel car high downforce car just blew my mind when I had a chance to drive the, the McLaren F1 car in Bahrain. And I, I started I started asking around if there's a way to get to Formula One. That was something that really interested you. Yeah, I knew that Formula, Formula One was owned by a US-based company. I know the need for a, an American-based driver in Formula One. And once I realized what it took to receive the license, that you have to kind of come up through uh, the European racing series earn enough points to earn the license to drive a Formula One car. I was like, I oh, guess it's not gonna work. But but I, I looked around and, and that really got 
got me thinking about driving open wheel cars. And even if you didn't have to come up to the European racing circuit to get the license, like what would you be doing to yourself? You you would have just been stopping NASCAR because <laughs> of the grind, and then you're gonna possibly go do Formula One. I mean, it's I'm sure it's a grind. It was, it's such a premier form of racing, but it's only like 20 races. So it, you know, in my eyes, it's it's almost half. Right. <laughs> so I mean, it's like a global travel schedule. I mean, that, man, I, and that that's one of the thing that fuels fuels my wife and I is travel. And, and so to think about working globally and traveling all these amazing places seemed uh, seemed pretty cool. Wait, was she on board with the idea at the time? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, if we could pull it off. Yeah, and it, global racing. Absolutely. So you started looking into that, realized it wasn't going to happen, and then your head turns towards IndyCar. It does, and, and at the time, um, the CEO of McLaren, Zach Brown, was was open to me pursuing the path of Formula One, and then they also have an IndyCar. And in the beginning, that was was really my first opportunity to drive an IndyCar was the McLaren IndyCar, and again, just the experience of a single seater open wheel car high downforce uh, that's when i found my my energy to to pursue this uh, because up until that point i really thought that full-time racing or or such premier high level racing was behind me a likelihood it continues beyond the two years um i'm all about it i'm i'm actively trying to figure out how to uh to end up in 23 and beyond just having so much fun doing it what's like involved with making that happen having a seat available with the team so wherever the team's plans are heading and then uh, then clearly having the corporate support to do so um, so my commitments there my family's buy-in and commitments there it's really just the, the team and sponsor pieces have you now uh, committed in, in your head to uh, running the ovals i was convinced ovals weren't for me in, to start this process and sign a two-year deal um, so now it's kind of complicated mid-contract uh, to, to sort it all out and see what the team's capable of doing. it'd be nice to be on there next season. Yes. Yeah, yeah I would love to, to be in the Indy 500 next season. Um, and then, you know, if I'm running the 500, there, there's an argument. I would have a better 500 if I was to run the race before, which is Texas. And then if you run those two tracks, those are the fastest tracks. I may as well run the other ones. So um, there's still a lot to be sorted out, but uh, I'm as close as I've ever been to, to running an oval, and especially the Indy 500. How did you find you needed to tweak your workouts from NASCAR to IndyCar? IndyCar is much more upper body focused and a lot higher heart rate. For me, I have a low heart rate, and the longer the event, the more aerobic the event is, I'm just better at endurance events. When you, when you shorten the distance and the heart rate goes up, that's against other competitors in my age group, that's never been my, my strength. For NASCAR, the races are four hours long. Going on a four hour bike ride and staying hydrated and, and having the energy from nutrition, and then the mental commitment to sit on the bike for four hours yeah. was much like a cup race. But for, for IndyCar, um, 10K efforts, uh, being on a rowing machine and doing 20 minute intervals on the rowing machine or a ski erg machine, you know, the really high heart rate, shorter bursts of energy uh, really, really is what IndyCar needs. How many marathons and triathlons have you done? One marathon, uh -huh. um, I'd say 10 half marathons and then 170.3 triathlon and then a bunch of sprints and uh, and Olympic distance triathlons. And what's on, on your bucket list of kind of athletic endeavors to still do? New York Marathon is on my hit list. You've done the Boston. Done Boston. 
I've always wanted to do a full Ironman. I haven't been in the pool in a few years, so that seems really far away to, to consciously go after that. But I, I love to mountain bike and with my, having a home in Colorado, there are a few um, big mountain bike races there, like the Leadville 100. Yeah. And that, that's been high on my hit list too. With, with Lance? Yeah, I mean, he's, I don't think he's ridden it in a few years. Yeah. Um, probably five or six different buddies that I mountain bike with on, on a regular basis all did it. And I'm on a text chain with, with all those guys and um, watching them get ready and the harassment and then the harassment following the event's been pretty cool. And, and I look forward to doing that one. How, how long before you think you end up doing it? It's in August, end of August. I, I probably need to look at the calendar. I feel like with the amount of time I spend in Colorado in the summer, I could at least, I might not ride the time I want to ride, but I could at least finish it. How did you find working out helped you mentally? It's a great stress relief. It, um, and, and once I burn off that frustration, the mental clarity, and then just, I go back into my visualization skills that I learned and start thinking about a track, a car and the setup, whatever it might be. People kind of questioned whether it made sense to do a, a big bike race before a professional race that you had and you made the point before that actually you found it helped you. Oh yeah. If anyone's worked to, uh, to run a marathon or a triathlon, any of these longer distance endurance races, you know, you, you learn just how committed you have to be, how painful it is, the, the mental challenge that comes with it, preparation. The more committed I was on training and preparing for a triathlon or a marathon, the, the more organized I was professionally. It was wild how similar the two worlds were mentally once I got into it. We also traveled to the nearby Soco Art Gallery in Charlotte. The gallery was founded by Johnson's wife, Chani, and we got a chance to talk to the couple together. How do you propose? We were in Beaver Creek, and I remember Jimmy said, wear your best outfit today. We're going to take photos. I thought, that's strange. And we were, well, snowboarding down the mountain. Snowboarding down, yeah. And a photographer was with us, and he said, he's coming with us to take photos. I thought, that's interesting. <laughs> they don't usually do that. <laughs> I should have known. And um, before I knew it, he was proposing. It was a little awkward when I went down on a knee. She thought she was supposed to kneel for the photo as well. And I was like, no, no, honey, you need to stand for this. <laughs> what? No, please stand. How's, how's life changed since kids? I mean, in every way. Life oh. has changed before the better. It's been amazing. They're such fun children and we're having a blast with them. Jimmy loves to dirt bike with Lydia and both girls ride horses and we take them everywhere. They go everywhere yeah. in their life. And on uh, this, um, kind of a loaded question, but why do you think the relationship works? Um, we're great partners and I think there's a lot of mutual respect and love and support. I just add to that, like the support for one another to. Be, to chase whatever you want to chase. Like she's supported me through this whole journey. And when she thought it was over and I've, I've found IndyCar and she continues to support. And then the building we're sitting in was something that, that as an example, I, I was like, babe, you gotta, you gotta yes. go. You gotta I mean, chase his passion. He was the biggest so. cheerleader of this project. And some days I tell him it's his fault when I'm so busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for this episode of the In-Depth Podcast. For more racing content, a tour of Johnson's trophy-studded Charlotte warehouse, and a ride along at 150 miles per hour with Mario Andretti, head to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. As always, we'd appreciate your feedback and let us know who you'd like to see or hear next on the show. Thanks again for listening.